Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. On this week's Tactical Tuesday, I am joined by one of the crushers in the village and longtime student, John Chai. John, how you doing, sir? How's it going, Brad? It's going well. You've cooked up a couple of hands for us to explore with the audience today. Anything you want to tell us about the theme of today's episode? The theme of both of these hands is going to be finding spots where our opponents perceive us uh, and the general population to be under bluffing and working in bluffs to take advantage of that perception. And by under bluffing and finding unnatural bluff spots, could you go a little bit more in depth as to what you mean? These are situations where I think the population under bluffs, because I rarely into bluffs, uh, rarely run into bluffs in these spots myself. More importantly, I think they are spots that the population believes are under bluffed, and as a result, uh, the population will give me too much credit for having value in these spots. How how do you discern your opponent believing that a specific spot is going to be under bluffed? So these bluffs, I will only be running against other regs. Uh, both, mostly because I think that, like myself, these regs will have the perception that the spots where I'm running the bluffs are going to be underbluffed uh, from their personal experience. So basically, you're projecting how you would feel about the spot onto the opponent that you're playing against, and that's giving you the ability to discern whether or not you believe that this reg views a spot as underbluffed or not. Correct. With that said, let's dive into these hands. They're played at 1K, no limit, uh, six max cash games on ignition. And hand number one, we've got the Jack Nine of Hearts. We're playing five handed. We are in the big blind. John, why don't you break down the action for the listener? Sure. So the hand starts with action being folded around to the button. The button appears to be a reg and has uh, starts a hand with 100 big blinds, which is going to be the effective stack. The button opens to $25, or 2.5x, which is uh, pretty standard. Small blind folds, and I'm in the big blind with Jack-9 of hearts. I 3-bet. Jack-9 of hearts is going to be a pretty standard 3-bet for me, big blind versus button. I make it 11 big blinds to $110, and the button calls. And tell me, why is Jack-9 suited a standard 3-bet out of the big blind for you when there's a lot of natural incentive to call and close the action? Well, the first reason is I think um, I'm going to be playing a uh, slightly more polarized 3-betting range um, from the big blind. And one of the things that I look for when I am 3-betting polarized uh, for the kind of the bluff bottom portion of my polarized three betting range is playability. So, you know, while the top end of my three betting range is going to look like very pocket pair and Broadway heavy, the bottom 
bluff range um, is going to include a lot of suited connectors and Jack nine suited uh, is going to be one of them. On top of that, it's also uh, preflop bootcamp approved. Uh, so I probably learned it from there. Jack nine suited. I think those are good reasons to be reopening the action with the Jack and a nine and three betting the buttons open. You don't want to just have, you know, the top end value in your range, like ace king and then tens plus, right? We need some other hands that play pretty well out of position post flop for a number of reasons. I, I guess one of the major reasons is is board coverage. We're also attacking a, a loose opening range on the button there. So a lot of good reasons to three bet jack nine. And now we get a flop after our opponent calls. The flop is six of hearts, five of diamonds, deuce of clubs. How are we going to start out this hand, John? Um, so my go-to strategy uh, when I'm playing three-bet pots out of position, or I guess not even out of position, when I'm playing three-bet pots as the three-better is to take a large sizing on these uh, low flops, on these non-Broadway flops. Um, so that's what I decided to do here. I see bet two-thirds. The pot is uh, $225, and I decide to bet 147. Why the two thirds on these low non-Broadway boards? Uh, the main reason I think is I have a large uh, overpair advantage. Um, once my opponent doesn't four bet preflop, I'm going to have a large range advantage. Uh, excuse me, large range advantage on this board simply because of the the large number of overpairs I have in my range versus the types of hands that he has in his range. While he certainly does have a nut advantage on this board uh, where I likely don't have hands like pocket sixes, pocket fives, pocket deuces, probably don't have hands like three, four suited, and, and maybe the button can have those hands. Um, I still think that a flop like this heavily favors uh, my over, over pair heavy range to his button flatting range. Yeah, I mean, technically, he's supposed to flat all his pocket pairs and open all his pocket pairs here. So right. he can have nine combinations of sets. I don't know that he has Trey Force suited, likely folds that pre. So nine combos, while Villain does have those hands, when you look at the combinatorics of the situation, like we have six aces, kings, queens, jacks, that's 24. So yeah, while he does have a nut advantage, we do have the overpair advantage, and I'm definitely on board here with your sizing up. What's your expectation here when you size up? Like when villain flats, do you expect to get floated? And if so, what type of hands do you expect to defend facing this large C-bet? So I expect all the pocket pairs that he defends with preflop to call this flop bet. I would expect pocket threes, pocket fours with a gut shot to call, and obviously sevens through jacks if he chooses the flat jacks instead of four betting um, are going to call as well. I uh, expect most regs at 1KNL to also float the large sizing a fair amount. I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, called a two-thirds C-bet on the flop with ace-queen high or a hand like king-jack of diamonds with a backward flush draw. I think there are two types of regs in the pool, the type that float those types of hands, those like ace high, those backdoor king high flush draw type hands versus the large sizing, and also a type of reg that only calls, uh, only continues with pocket pairs or sets, um, or an open ender like 7-8 suited um, on this type of board. But I do think that both types of regs exist at 1KNL. Do you expect him to have a raising range here? If he's incentivized to flat so often with 
overcards and backdoors and pocket pairs, like, do you expect this bet size to ever get raised? I would be very surprised to see this size get raised, uh, especially on a rainbow board. I am not sure that my opponent is going to have any raises. Um, I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but I don't think that they would. I think on a flop with a flush draw, I wouldn't be surprised to see my opponent uh, raising some flush draws in position. Um, but on this specific rainbow 6-5 deuce board, I would not expect to get raised. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either. Just because they're flatting so frequently, they're going to be aware of the amount of combinations that they're supposed to flat with here. And it's going to be hard for them to find the bluffs. And when it's hard for them to find the natural bluffs to raise with, it also that, that just means that it's also harder to raise with your value because you don't know how to... You don't know how to structure a, a decent raising range on this type of texture with enough hands so that you're more balanced and just not ultra nutted up here when you raise, which leads most villains to just construct a pure flat calling range. With that said, villain does flat our bet. And then we see a card that connects with a lot of the hands that we just talked about here, the seven of spades. So there's $518 in the pot. Villain's stack size is 748, so SPR is about 1.5. You cover the villain. The board is deuce of clubs, five of diamonds, six of hearts, seven of spades, so full rainbow board. Tell me about the action that you choose to take here. So I choose to check on the seven of spades. I think uh, on a card that connects fairly well with the flop and the types of hands that call this flop, uh, I think I'm going to be checking my entire range on the seven of spades. I think I would be checking, happy to check hands uh, that are over pairs, you know, aces through jacks, and would probably be giving up with a decent amount of my two overs type, two broad, two overs Broadway type hands at three bet preflop. I could see myself giving up with, you know, Ace King, Ace Queen here after getting called on the flop and and getting what at least appears to be a, a pretty unfavorable turn for my range. Right, and with SPR of one point five, there's nothing in the rule books that says if turn goes check check and the river's you know a deuce, a five, a six that we can't just overbet rip. So we don't really miss out on value when the turn goes check check. Yeah, again, this is another spot where your range just naturally wants to check. So we probably aren't betting much of anything here on this specific turn. With that said, you check and your opponent throws out the little dude, the 122, one quarter pot size bet here. You have jack high, a gut shot, a couple over cards. Tell me about your thought process now. So I like this size a lot uh, by the button. That's kind of my first thought. Um, I think it's a size that that I think reg, a lot of regs and myself included are going to make folding mistakes against, meaning that I think that I will likely be folding too often versus a third or a quarter on the turn. Um, for example, if he fl did float with a hand like, you know, King Jack suited and, you know, sees me check the turn and decides to bet this small amount, he could, I think, easily get folds from better hands, maybe even um, like a hand like ace five suited uh, that I might three bet, see about the flop and check the turn with. He can put in a tough spot 
Yeah, I think if he is going to, I think if the button is going to be betting the turn at all, I really like the size from him. Yeah, pretty reasonable, good sizing. This hand is <laughs> kind of playing itself, right? And here, you know, you're getting about 5.24 to 1 when Villain chooses this one-fourth sizing. Tell me about your thought process and your reaction to that small bet. I would expect the button to think that uh, with overcards and no pair, uh, I would expect the button to think that I am going to be folding a lot in this spot and just giving up once I check the turn. I don't think it's completely unreasonable to expect someone to continue barreling with uh, their overpairs a lot of the time, um, even though we said that it was probably a better idea, better idea to check them on the turn and keep barreling. So once I've opened the door to the button for a potential bluff on the turn, I think that there is a decent portion of his range that I can fold out uh, or at least put in, in sort of a really tough spot. Uh, if he has over pairs, I think eights through jacks. If I make a check raise on the turn, uh, they're going to be in a tough spot because I think you know, like we said at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the show, that uh, this spot is going to be underbluffed. I don't think most players are going to be finding check jams on this turn without overpairs uh, or the occasional set or straight themselves. Um, so when he does bet this turn, I uh, decide to go for the check jam and try to fold out all the better hands that basically aren't sets or straights themselves and put his over pairs in a, in a tough spot. Yeah. A couple of things like when we bet the flop, we have some of those broadways with backdoor flush draws in our own range. And so villain betting a quarter here, I think is really good because it folds out a lot of those hands, like a lot of those hands that we have in our range. I don't love that. We have the Jack of hearts, you know, that blocks some of the backdoor combos that villain can float with the queen jacks, the jack tens, the king jack, and then possibly the ace jack of hearts. So I don't love that aspect of it, but really, like you just said, it's hard to find tons of bluffs with a check jam here. This is likely just pretty nutted by the sane members of the population. <laughs> um, hard to find like a check rip with like king queen of clubs, um, which basically means if it's hard to find the check rips with those type of hands, that just means that villains are likely to be under bluffing, which is you know your exact theory in this spot. And so when you rip, you fold out the hands that villain has that floated the flop, so the overcards with backdoor flush draws, and then also trying to target the eights, nines, tens in villain's range. And I think if you can fold out the eights, nines, and tens at a decent frequency, then you're just going to be printing here. So yeah, I really love your decision here to to pile and so what was the result after you face this quarter pot size bet and then you rip it uh so my opponent tanks down uh pretty deep into his 10 bank i think that's pretty expected i think other than a set or eight nine if he's gonna call he probably has should think about it for a decent amount of time um unfortunately the button did end up calling with pocket eights and um, the river was a nine, so I made a pair, but he made a straight. Yeah, so we had good thought process and bad result, villain calling with eights here. And 
these kind of spots we cover a lot in our coaching sessions, right? Where it's like this specific villain did end up calling with eights, but when you look at like 10 iterations of this exact spot, some number of them are folding out their eights, nines, and tens, right? So just because this one villain did call with the eights doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bad bluff attempt. It just means that you ran into a sticky villain that's not going to be folding their pocket eights here, likely because they came to the same conclusion that you did. They came to the conclusion that like, if they fold out eights, what are they calling with? Oh, they're just calling with their sets. And that's probably not a good thing. So likely the fact that they have blockers to the nuts and then they have some equity when they call and you know we just show them aces likely made them call with pocket eights uh, in a spot where, I don't know, they, they probably shouldn't, quite frankly. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see if the button might have been able to find a fold with a hand like pocket tens or nines, hands that don't have as many outs as the pocket eights. I think calling with pocket eights, like you said, is, is, is pretty reasonable. Like eights, nines, and tens are sort of the same hand uh, in this situation. Either you are, like usually you're up against an overpair or you're, or you're just up against a bluff. And given that, you know, eights, nines, and tens are sort of the same hand, I think out of those three hands, eights probably makes the most sense to call with with the extra straight outs. So a uh, little unlucky in the sense that I ran into like one of the pocket pairs or maybe the pocket pair that has the easiest time falling. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested to see if, if, uh, if this bluff works more, more often versus uh, pocket nines or pocket tens. Who knows? They could just tell themselves like, Oh, we don't block eight X. So now, now villages has like four, four combinations of like ace eight suited. I don't think they are going to think that we have pocket eights a lot because eights is like very incentivized to just flat the turn, getting a good price with a lot of equity. I don't think we're check jamming with hands like eights or nines ourselves, but a hand like ace eight suited does make a lot of sense to check rip here. And if you have tens, then you know your head can go to that place of like, hmm, I don't block ace eight suited. Maybe I should be calling with tens. There's always this narrative. There's always a story you can tell yourself that justifies your decision in these kind of spots. So anyway, it, it's a it's an interesting hand. I love the thought process. Just didn't work out. That's poker. And coming up after the jump, we're going to cover a hand where, you know, villain's not going to love himself in the morning after reviewing this hand. Stick around and we'll be breaking down hand number two. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. Welcome back to hand number two and finding some unnatural bluffing spots. Just a quick reminder for longtime listeners of the podcast, preflop bootcamp. The next iteration is firing up very, very soon. If you would like 
to optimize your pre-flop play so that you can gain more bandwidth to playing post-flop and just dramatically upgrade your game in general, head to chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. Sign up for the next iteration. Mr. John Chai, let's look at hand number two. Sure. So this hand also happened at uh, 510 no limit, um, playing six max cash on ignition. It gets folded around to the small blind. We're playing 100 big blinds effective. I am in the big blind. The small blind opens to $30 and I call with king 10 off suit. Any thoughts of three betting the king 10 off, playing it as a pure flat? I play it as a pure flat. I think that is also what the uh, preflop bootcamp recommends to do. So. <laughs> yeah, shockingly, you were the superstar of the first preflop bootcamp back in the day, maybe three months ago. It feels like much longer than that. And I think you've gone from like 200 NL to 1K NL at this point, still using the preflop bootcamp strategy. It's still doing work as you're progressing and moving up the ranks. That's very validating for me, just as a coach <laughs> and a content creator. Yeah, as a as an ex preflop bootcamper, I can definitely attest to the value of the program. I've been using the ranges actually since 100 NL and have basically copied and pasted the ranges into 510 no limit, and uh, they work just as good here. That is good news. They just keep working regardless of what stake you're playing. And now we flat the king and the ten mm-hmm. from the big blind. The flop is jack of diamonds, nine of diamonds, deuce of spades. There's $60 in the middle. Tell us about the action. The small blind decides to c-bet for around two-thirds pot. He bets $42.75 into $60. Uh, this is a pretty large c-bet. I think I think that's like the first thing that I noted was uh, that this was a pretty hefty C bet as far as C bets go. But on a board that is as wet as Jack Nine Deuce uh, Two Tone, it's not all that surprising that the small blind can find some larger sizes uh, with both draws and uh, value that he's looking to protect. What's interesting is like a lot of our value here, the Jack Nine offs, maybe the pocket deuces, those two parts of the hands that we have um, in our value range likely start by raising this big bet, which I think is pretty important to talk about because basically when we flat, Villain has a lot of incentive to continue barreling on a wide variety of turns simply because the board is wet. We don't have a ton of value combinations here and our value is incentivized to raise. So Villain is likely facing what they perceive to be a capped range and I would expect future bets. Yeah, I agree. I think once, especially on such a wet board, once I flat, um, the villain can, or the small blind can be pretty sure that I don't have two pair. Uh, and I don't, I definitely don't have bottom set versus the sizing. Uh, some of the time, I, I, I suppose I could be finding traps with uh, middle set. But even then, I would have to not through that pocket nines creep up, which is, uh, which is not happening. <laughs> right. And a lot of the suited broadways were through betting too, right? So a lot of the combo draws, like the King 10 of diamonds, ace deuce through ace five of diamonds, those hands that can fall into our three betting range. So like we don't have a ton of flush draws. We're likely capped at a bunch of nine X, a bunch of Jack X. Occasionally we could have the two combos of Jack deuce suited that we defend with that we could find in our value raise range. But we're, we're just so incentivized to, to raise with our value here that when we don't, the opponent just gets to barrel and kind of make our lives a living hell on future streets. 
Yeah, I agree. I think once, like, on brick turns, the villain can just go crazy with both sizing and, and, and frequency betting really big. Um, especially in these wide-range spots, small blind versus big blind, it'll be just a spot where he can print. Agreed. So with all that said, you decide to flat with your king 10. Any thoughts of raising this bet? In position, I think I am, well, not that it matters. I think out of position, I, I would just be folding like naked gutter a lot of the time to a uh, large size. Um, but in position with overcard and a nut gut shot versus what I think to be a pretty polarizing C bet size, I think I can say that I would flat almost all my draws, even some of my stronger combo draws. I think I can find a flat with like, even if I had a hand like 10, seven of diamonds for a plus draw and a gutter, I think versus the large sizing being in position, I'd be flatting a lot. So no thoughts of raising. We flat our King 10 and let's go to the turn. So the turn is the seven of hearts. So the board is now Jack of diamonds, nine of diamonds, deuce of spades, seven of hearts. I turn a double gutter with my King 10 offsuit. Uh, there is $145.50 in the pot, and the small blind bets $201.50. So uh, about 130% pot. So they overbet 130% pot, 201. We have 927, and both us and the villains started the hand with a 1K stack. So we have the exact same stack facing this large overbet on the turn. Could you tell me? A little bit about what you expect villain's range to look like and how that informed your action. Sure. So I think that villain's range looks very polarized right now. I think once he bets a hundred and like over pot on this turn, his range is for value is going to include everything from over pairs to sets with the occasional two pair um i think it would have to be jack nine uh one of the three combos of jack nine suited there's two combos of jack seven suited and two combos of nine seven suited as well right but i don't know if they would bet so big on the flop with jack seven suited maybe i don't know maybe they do if they do have that then yeah they have an extra um extra combo couple combos of jack seven suited i'd also expect uh, a lot of draws to overbet everything from like the best draws like queen 10 and 10 native diamonds hands like naked diamonds maybe even like the occasional gutter with like king queen uh, or king 10 himself ace 10 maybe yeah villain can have eight 10 suited as well so they have like three combos where they just turn a straight right i think that's in their value range as well bluffing range again like we said on the flop they've got a lot of incentive to keep putting the pressure on because of how this hand has developed you know what's our Big thing that we say about identifying villains' bluffing range. If they're a fish, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, if they're a fish, don't do it. And even sometimes if they're regs, don't do it, right? Like, villain can be getting very out of line with a bunch of hands that we're not considering here. So their bluffing range is likely wider than we can construct. And there's no way to prove it one way or the other. Just from experience of getting to showdown and villains finding these funky, weird hands in their bluffing range that we would never we would never really think that they're there, and somehow they are. So with all that value in villains' range and then the construction of you know the combo draws, those types of hands, beyond that, there's likely a bunch of hands that we're not even really considering here 
that villain's going for it uh, with. And so with that said, tell me about your turn to action here. Um, so just to recap, the villain bets $200 into $145, which he leaves him $725 back. And uh, after trying the double gutter, I decide to jam the King-10 offsuit uh, over the overbet. Yeah, tell me why. The main reason I decided to bluff this spot is because I've been looking at uh, turnover bets pretty closely since playing 1KNL, starting to play 1KNL about a month ago. And what I've found is that these overbets, which seem like very polar um, at first glance, are actually not as polar uh, as they appear to be, uh, mostly because the regs who are choosing the strategy are not value betting enough on the turn, meaning that they are not picking the sizing very often with their over pairs or their sets um, or their turn straights. I found that most of the time um, their value sizing is usually something much more standard, like two thirds to three quarters on the turn, and that the turnover bet is often just a weak draw or some hand ranging in between a weak draw and a strong draw with some air in between. Because of all the incentives that we talked about on the flop, right? That's sort of what drives that action. I think that's actually a pretty good strategy, kind of going ham here, overbetting with some of your weakish type draws and then choosing a more standard sizing with like your top two, your sets, and your overpairs. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me as to why that strategy would be constructed in that way. It's interesting that there's some reduction. Um, there's some value reduction based on choosing the overbet sizing. Versus like the you know $105 sizing or whatever sizing they're deciding to use with a fair amount of their value. Also, this spot's likely to be very under bluffed, right? Like they're not likely to be facing a ton of shoves here on this seven of hearts. And they're certainly not likely to be getting bluffed with a high frequency versus population, I wouldn't think. Right. I think in general, just not even this spot specifically, but I would expect almost all players to perceive um, someone playing back versus an overbet to be under bluffing um, just massively. I think this spot just makes it slightly more likely that after he goes big bet on the flop and, and overbet on the turn that I think it's maybe that makes it extra unlikely that I'm bluffing. But yeah, I think just overbets in general, playing back at them is, is going to be an under bluff spot. Uh, it's a fine line we walk, right? Bluffing in the spots, villains don't expect us to be bluffing very much. It can work out amazingly well, and then it can also work out disastrously um, <laughs> when we learn the reason why villains aren't over bluffing <laughs> in these spots. They they just get called too often. So here you rip it, uh, 927 with your double gut shot, and villain does find the fold and because we play on the streets of Ignition, we get to see what Villain had. So what did Villain fold? Uh, Villain folded pretty quickly, if I remember correctly. And uh, Villain actually ended up having Queen 8 of Diamonds. So he flopped a straight uh, gutter straight flush draw on Jack Knight Deuce, two diamonds, and ended up having to fold the turn after overbetting. Yeah, that's not a fun, not a fun fold. And I would fold... I would not fold quickly, and I would have an emotional reaction, uh, <laughs> a, a non-positive emotional reaction here, because I don't, I don't expect to get raised 
with a high frequency, right? Even with queen eight of diamonds, like we block eight ten suited. We block eight ten suited. Eight ten suited is likely to raise the flop at some frequency. A lot of our value is likely to raise the flop. So we just don't expect to run into a ton of value that finds shoves here. And when you do and you have a straight flush and you're forced to fold it, it's just extra, extra painful. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, pretty painful to pull the straight flush draw at any point, I guess. <laughs> You say that with a smile on your face. Um, <laughs> much more fun to be you in this spot, making him fold the straight flush draw than him actually pulling the trigger. And you know you do actually have seventy five percent equity. So with King High, you're you're doing pretty hot against the straight flush draw. <laughs> nah, man. Thanks for coming on to Tactical Tuesday. These hands are super interesting. I'm sure that the listener will have some follow up questions. And if you would like to spend some time with me, Coach Brad, and John Chai, and Coach Thomas, and the other contributors to Tactical Tuesday, head to chasingpokergreatness.com slash VIP, join the newsletter, hop into our private Slack community, Greatness Village, and we will see you on the inside. John, once again, thank you very much. Well, thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. We'll do it again in the future. Catch you next week on Tactical Tuesday.